Welcome once again to Church of the Good Shepherd. I'm so glad you're joining us uh, today uh, in service, whether you're here, you're gathered in this place, or joining us via live stream. We welcome you. The key verse in this passage, of course, is uh, verse 35, where a voice came from the cloud, which is obviously God's voice, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear His Word. Father, we thank You for this time as we gather to sit at Your feet to listen to Your Word proclaimed. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Today is the Feast of the Transfiguration, and it doesn't always fall on a Sunday. The Feast of the Transfiguration is uh, commemorated on the 6th of August. Uh, this year, it happens to be a Sunday, which is why we celebrate it on Sunday. But this feast is actually quite an important milestone in the life of Jesus. Be- between uh, His birth and His death at Easter, this is one of the uh, key moments in His life in which you know He demonstrated who He is and who... Uh, um, he is as the Son of God, and his, his deity, in a sense, was apparent to the disciples, even though it was a very select group of disciples. And I want us to take some time just to look at this passage and to reflect upon it uh, and how it applies to us and how it can help us in terms of living our own Christian life. So we pick up the account here in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. It says, eight days after these sayings, what sayings was uh, um, uh, Luke referring to? If you look a little bit earlier from verses 18 to 27, you'll see that, you know, Jesus had a set of teachings, things he was teaching the disciples, the first of which when, um, you know, he asked the disciples, "Who who do the people say that I am? And of course, all kinds of answers came back at him. Then he asked uh, Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are Christ, son of the living God, which of course revealed his identity. The identity of Jesus was proclaimed in that first saying. Then after that, he began to talk about the fact that, you know, what his mission was, that he's headed to Jerusalem ultimately to die, that after three days he would rise again. And in that sense, he was proclaiming his passion and or predicting his passion, what was about to take place. And finally, just in the uh, uh, passages, just before this point, uh, he then promises his glory. First, he challenges the disciples and he says to them, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And to tell us that, you know, if we don't deny him, he won't deny us. That ultimately we are bound for glory. He was bound for glory. But that the, the, the intention was that each and every one of us as his disciples would also follow him there. Oh, actually I put up the verses. Sorry, I should have <laughs> showed it to you. I forgot I had it up here on the screen. But you can see verses 20, the identity of uh, Jesus was proclaimed. Verse 22 The passion was predicted in verse 26 and following, really, his glory was promised. So in a sense, this was what Jesus uh, spoke to them. When we look at the uh, uh, 
transfiguration, it's really him backing up his words, as it were. And it was a foretaste of what is to come. You know, I was, um, um, let's look at the passage first, verse 29, and it says, And hence, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which we, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, yesterday, I tried to uh, use an illustration which I realized generationally we are a little bit removed. But I was saying, you know, in the old days, I used to go to watch movies in the cinema. I, I mean, we still watch movies in cinema, but not as much as before. Nowadays, you watch a lot of movies, you know, through your streaming apps or whatever. Uh, uh, or some of you, I know, watch it illegally, downloaded from some site, you know. <laughs> but I remember when I was uh, younger, I used to know what movies were coming up. You know, nowadays, sometimes I have free time and my wife and I say, oh, it'd be nice to go catch a movie in a movie theater. And we ask, what movies are there? And we say, we have no clue because we don't watch any trailers anymore. Somehow my uh, social media algorithm doesn't pop up trailers to me. So I have no idea what movies are coming out. But in the old days, do you remember? Akan datang. And then they'll run the movie trailers. I always made sure I came to the movie theater early because I want to watch all the trailers because it tells me what's coming up. Only problem is sometimes you're in for disappointment, right? You watch a trailer, wow, this movie must watch. Except all the best parts were in the trailer. <laughs> you watch the rest of the movie, it wasn't worth watching. Or at times you get frustrated because there's like one scene which you're looking forward to and then you realize you watch a whole movie, they cut it in the end. <laughs> they decided to change it. Because oftentimes movie trailers are cut together before the final edit is, is done. But nonetheless, in a sense, this is what the transfiguration was meant to uh, serve as. As a trailer, as a foretaste of what is to come. That God, you know, was not only proclaiming to them what was going to happen, but He was going to show them, not just tell them, but show them. And you see here in verses 29 and 30, first and foremost, He shows them a foretaste of the glory. You know, the fact that His clothing became dazzling white. And uh, that, you know, the, the promise of the resurrection is also being shown here because suddenly Moses and Elijah, who were long dead, appeared next to Jesus and began conversing with him. But we see in verse 31, then he again uh, talks about his passion. He spoke with the two uh, um, 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 fathers of our faith, in that sense, about his departure, about the fact that he was about to go to Jerusalem to die that this was God's plan for salvation, that he talked about the suffering that he was about to accomplish, uh, uh, the suffering he was about to go through to accomplish God's purposes for humankind, in verse 31. But if you skip a little bit further ahead, in verse 30, wait, verse 35, I thought it should be here, okay, never mind. Uh, verse 35 you know what I had put right at the beginning. I, I'm sorry, I thought I had it in here. Uh, is the fact that, you know, the voice came from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The identity of Jesus was identified right there. But we go on then into the passage in verses 32 uh, to 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three booths, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, somehow or other, this sounds familiar, right? They go with Jesus to pray. And what happens? They fall asleep. Now, I want to say this to you, right? If you fall asleep during prayer meetings, don't worry. You're in good company. Peter, James, and John also did it. Not only here, you read later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, same thing happened. So I was telling the young people yesterday, we got prayer, church prayer meeting coming up this coming Friday. If you need to catch up in your sleep, come for prayer meeting. <laughs> no, no, I'm not advocating you fall asleep in prayer meeting. But I'm saying, don't worry, you know, just come and watch and pray as best you can. Right? Uh, if you fall asleep, that's our humanness uh, coming through and it happens inevitably. Don't worry, someone will wake you up. <laughs> but come and pray. But look at this. This is why, you know, I think Peter was roused from his sleep all of a sudden. You know how sometimes when you wake up, you don't talk a lot of sense. And apparently that's what uh, the, the, the writer Luke is saying about Peter's remark. He said, Master, it's good we remain here. Let's make three tents. And he didn't know what he was saying, in a sense. Uh, maybe he did. You know, I, I, um, it could have been fear, because in Mark's gospel, in the transfiguration, it says he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You know, and, and in that moment, he wasn't sure what he was saying. But as I think about it, I think, you know, nonetheless, it was definitely a glorious experience. And when you encounter, you know, God in such an amazing way, it's human nature to say, you know, let's stay here. It's an understandable sentiment. You know, I don't want to depart from this place. It's glorious. And, you know, we want to keep chasing these mountaintop experiences. But there's a, a pop song by Ben Rector. He has a line which I always captured me. He said, life is not the mountaintops but it's the walking in between. And that's the reality, isn't it? We cannot stay on the mountaintop here on earth. We have mountaintop experiences, but there's always an inevitability when we come down, real life encounters us. But this transfiguration, this glorious uh, uh, time was really, I think, to prepare them for what was to come. If you read on in this passage, you know that when they came down, immediately a man brought a son who was demon-possessed, and, you know, the, the text tells us the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And, you know, Jesus expresses a little bit of frustration. Oh, yeah, you guys, how much longer, you know, will it take for you to get the picture? And he cast the demon out. And you think about it, this glorious, uh, uh, didn't, glorious encounter with Jesus didn't exempt the disciples from the realities of, you know, their, their human failings thereafter. And we'll get to that as we move on in the passage. But in verse 34, it continues. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And if they were afraid before, they're even more terrified now because probably this cloud, you know, uh, uh, blocked their eyesight. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And it's a profound uh, um, word that God gives. 
you know, um, last weekend, not yesterday, but the previous Saturday, we had our cell uh, group leaders regular meeting. And our sister, Pastor Kafun, was sharing on how, as a church, we can become more inclusive in that, you know, have space for people who are maybe differently abled, who may not be neurotypical in the ways in which they interact with the world, and, you know, urging us to be mindful of that. And at the end, she passed around a book. Uh, Some of you may have gotten that book because many years ago, during one of our CIQs here, there was a young boy named Asher who is on the spectrum, ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, and he had uh, published a book with all his drawings. And I remember getting a a copy of that book, and one of the uh, drawings he had really blew me away. And in fact, it was the drawing of the transfiguration. Now, you can see, obviously, I think he was about 11 or nine, I can't remember how old he was when he began doing all these drawings. And his autism is quite far along, so that it took a long time for him to be even uh, verbal. He wasn't able to speak for much of his life until much later on. Uh, But he was able to take Bible stories and translate them into pictures. But I want you to notice, you know, the things that he says. Firstly, he recognized, you know, the voice coming and says, this is my own dear son, listen to him. But his interpretation of that, this was without any prompting, no one taught him. He does it all himself. He said this, the law is done, the prophets are done, now listen to Jesus And I was blown away because, you know, it took me many, many years of studying theology to understand how to interpret this passage. And yet, this is a young boy who, on, you know, so many scales society may think is not really all there. Yet, the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, downloaded to him such profound theological truths. And in that sense, you know, what he says is is true, although more accurately, what we should be saying is that the law and the prophets which Moses and Elijah represent, ultimately pointed to Jesus. They were to prepare us for understanding who Jesus is. Years ago, there was a book that came out in the US looking and doing a survey of American Christianity. And in it, uh, they surveyed about 3,000 young people who um, identified as Christians. And as they began to ask questions, qualitative questions of them to find out where their faith was, these authors, I think Christian Smith, and I can't remember who his other author is, uh, arrived at a, a way of defining the Christianity that they found in America as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Big words, okay? It sounds very chim. Unpacking it means that, you know, these Christians were all about how do you live a good life? You know, being moral in your uh, um, conduct, but also looking towards Christianity for therapy, right? Saying, you know, how can all my troubles be eased and helped? But then they have a deistic outlook on life. Deism is the belief that there was a God that set the world in motion, but then after that, he's not really very concerned. He's like the great uh, watchmaker. He wound the clock up for the world and then just left it to be. And unfortunately, you know, uh, that seemed to characterize American Christianity. 
But much later, another uh, Christian theologian by the name of Michael Horton wrote a book, uh, Christless Christianity, which I, I read his um, opening remarks on, and, and I'm going to quote for you here, because he, in recognizing this moralistic therapeutic deism, the version of Christianity he saw in the U.S. was a version of Christianity without Christ. What do I mean by that? He, in his intro to his book, said this, What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which is the city in which Donald Barnhouse was a pastor, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and the pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. And Horton goes on to say, commenting on American Christianity and the trajectory was hit. He's not saying that's where everyone is at, okay? But he was saying if we're not careful and we don't halt this decline, we will see God used as a personal resource rather than known and worshipped and trusted. Jesus is a coach with a good game plan for our victory rather than a saviour who has already achieved it for us. Salvation is more a matter of having our best life now than being saved from God's judgment by God Himself. And I like this last phrase because I can identify in some ways it's not just a problem in American Christianity. Even our Christianity here in Singapore is in danger of treating the Holy Spirit as an electrical outlet so we can plug into it for the power we need to be all that we can be. That Christianity turns into a utilitarian uh, a sort of religion. You know, what have you done for me lately is the sentiment that's there. But, you know, that's why the encounter with Jesus was so important for Peter. And we see this because uh, in the other reading we had from the New Testament, um, in Peter's epistle, the second letter of Peter was written by Peter to the churches that he had ministered to. And it was his last words, literally. I mean, it was not long after this, Peter was martyred. And, and as um, uh, a legend goes, Peter, just before he was going to be crucified, requested that he be crucified upside down. So oftentimes you see some of the art uh, depicting his crucifixion. Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross because he deemed himself not worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. And this is what he said in his introduction to the letter. He was pointing to the fact, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were made known to you, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. The, he was saying to them, you know, we're not like all these other um, mythical uh, uh, um, uh, Greek myths that were floating around and mystery religions that were the order of the day in, in Peter's time. You know, it's not carefully constructed stories, but eyewitnesses, it was an actual event. 
And the eyewitness event he points to is obviously the transfiguration because he goes on in verse 17. He says, For when he received honor and glory from the God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Firstly, he says to them that this is a historic faith. It's based on an event. It's based on what we ourselves saw and experienced. But what we learn, you know, the the the. the the lesson in the transfiguration is not so much what happened with Jesus, but what I think, I believe, happened with Peter and by default, James and uh, uh, um, John as well, was the fact that that experience with God really shone light in a dark place. Because if we are honest, living life on earth now as a Christian is not always easy, is it? There are times we encounter the difficulties of life and we are shaken. But that experience can carry us through because we know that ultimately it's a foretaste of what is to come. Now, we may not encounter Jesus in the same way in terms of a transfiguration, but I think if you begin talking to people, you will see that many of us have had an experience of God in our own lives. And we need that because ultimately that's the way in which it, it carries us forward. I want to talk about this issue of Christless Christianity because I think it's something we need to guard in ourselves and, and to make sure that we don't end up... You know, the best way to think of Christless Christianity, Michael Horton says, is to think about a religion that says, do more, try harder. Do more, try harder. <laughs> as opposed to the fact that it's done. It is finished. And, you know, as I thought about it, in many ways our society is not unlike the American society. We're coming up on National Day, right? And you know one of the favorite uh, national songs was Count on me, Singapore, right? And then in the refrain is We can achieve, we can achieve. And, and because we have this uh, national obsession with always um, uh, uh, doing more and trying harder, you know, the meritocracy, is it any wonder that somehow it can also slip into our faith? That we become so scrupulously religious that we pursue moralism at the expense of everything else. Now, I'm not saying we should be immoral. That's not what I'm saying. But we become so judgmental in the ways we live our lives, forgetting that, you know, uh, that's not what we are about. But before you think I'm, I'm just condemning people who are very religious, even the irreligious slip into it, right? You see uh, uh, um, um, examples of it, for example, in all the virtue signaling that takes place in society. Even if they're not religious, they'll tell you, oh, how you ought to think, how you ought to behave, how you ought to speak, what you ought to call people or not call people. And, and, and you know, they become law keepers of a uh, different kind. I've been debating about whether to share this 
but I think you know it helps bring home the lesson. How does this Christless Christianity manifest itself, and how do we see it sometimes uh, pop its head up? I got a message from a friend whose child was just diagnosed with cancer, and um, you know, asking for prayer, and I said, I will pray for you. But the problem is, uh, this is the third child. The first child died of cancer 14 years ago. And after I replied uh, to her, she sent me a text message back, which she was trying to couch in dark humor somewhat. You know, she put, I hope I won't have Christians guilting me this time about past sins. And then she put emojis, you know, with <laughs> the eyes all squirrely, <laughs> having to deal with that. And I, I immediately messaged her. I said, if anyone says that to you, send them to me. I'll correct their theology for them. <laughs> and she was very happy. Then she got a laughing emoji. But as I reflected on it, especially as I was preparing this sermon, I realized that sort of sentiment is often born from this religion of do more, try harder. Because if something bad happens to you, then it must have been your fault. That you didn't do enough. You didn't try hard enough. But the Word of God tells us that that is not how God operates. That it is not what we have done. Our our suffering is not because of our failure. It's not about the activity, our activity that we need to focus on, but really on the activity of God in our lives. And to know that despite the circumstance, despite the darkness we have faced, look to the points of light that you have experienced and continue to experience and pray for experiencing, you know, the measure of God. That's why the power of the Holy Spirit comes to us and we experience healing in small ways and large or strength in times that we need. Like the Apostle Paul, who himself had prayed, you know, for the thorn in his flesh to be removed and God said no, or didn't remove it rather, and said instead his reply to him was, My grace is made perfect in weakness. When you are weak, then I am strong. And this is the gospel which is the power of God for salvation. That we look to Him and we cling to Him. That what the transfiguration ultimately pointed to was the glory of the resurrection. And the fact that this world does not have the final word. That even when life ends in physical death, it's not the end. That the resurrection is to come. I think, you know, it's such a glorious thing to see that Moses and Elijah are still (laughs) alive. And they appeared with Jesus. Though long dead, it seemed like. And I'm amazed that you know, in those days, no photographs. How do you know this is Moses, this is Elijah? But they knew. Somehow or other, they recognized, Peter, James, and John recognized it was Moses and Elijah. And how, you know, meaningful that experience was. And you know, folks, we have now, in the light of the resurrection, also this light. We live, as we look back and we see Jesus' finished work on the cross didn't end there. 
that He rose from the dead and the disciples were eyewitnesses of it. And in the light of that, we know that this life is not all there is, that we have a lot more to look forward to. And that we have a God who promises us so much more. Amen? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word because it really sheds light in dark places that we often find ourselves in. Lord, many of us have come here today with all kinds of things going on in our lives. And in some places, Lord, we may find ourselves in darkness. I pray that your word today would shed light along the way. For us to know who it is that we worship. A God who loves us with an everlasting love. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that ultimately, Lord, we see that love fully demonstrated on the cross, which we will remember this morning through the Holy Communion. And I pray, Lord, that that love will translate from just being head knowledge into real heart knowledge, that we would experience a fresh vision of you. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to speak to us in the, in the way that only you can to assure us that you never leave us, you never forsake us, and that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. These things we ask and pray in your Son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen.